Good morning. Ah, it's going to be great. So my name is Paul. My name is Paul, and I'm one of the, uh, the leaders here at Sutton Vineyard. Um, I run one of the, uh, the small groups that we have, along with Wendy Sullivan. And uh, occasionally, you'll find me rocking the groove back there on bass as well. Oh, yeah. All in for that one. Now, uh, I'm also married to Heather, and we come here with our two small kids. Well, they're not that small anymore. Anyway, they're getting bigger. Uh, Jack and Naomi. And if this is your first time with us, let me add an extra welcome. We're so pleased that you're here with us this morning. And also a big hello to those of you online and those of you listening on the podcast as well. Ooh, random podcast shout out. So this morning we're carrying on our series in John's Gospel and what a moment we are looking at. It is nothing short of the turning point of history. It's the big reveal. It's where the rubber truly hits the road. Because today we're looking at John's retelling of the resurrection event itself. And don't worry, your calendar is correct. It is the 27th of March, Mother's Day, and not Easter Sunday. It's just the way the series has worked out uh, with John's gospel. Now, I'm going to read the Bible verses for us in a moment. John 20, 1 to 18, all of them, because it's amazing. If you want to follow along with your Bibles, great. They'll also be appearing on the screens uh, or in the banner at the bottom if you're online. Now, before I read those verses, though, I want to set the scene a little bit. Jesus has completed his earthly ministry. It's culminating in some of the things that we've heard about in the last few weeks. He's told his disciples what's to come. He's announced the impending arrival of the Holy Spirit. We've had the trial with Peter's denials. We've had Jesus meeting Pilate. We've had the garden and we've had the crucifixion itself. And following Jesus' brutal execution, the disciples are in hiding. They're traumatized anxious, scared, frightened, and fearful. And it's into this bleak, hopeless moment we will step this morning. Good news, there is hope. I also want to briefly point us at something else as well. John's gospel was written quite some time after Jesus' death and resurrection. Why might that be significant? Well, with John, it's like he's taken 30 or 40 years to really process what's happened. And in his telling, he blends factual content, real events, with significance and meaning. That's why I like John's gospel. And there's one particular book that John repeatedly echoes and alludes to on his way through as he tells us what happened. Going to guesses? Any guesses? All right, well, there are only two books in the Bible that start in the beginning. And John's gospel is one of them. So you might have it now if you didn't have it before. John repeatedly echoes Genesis. Why? Well, we're going to get to that. But for now, as I read the verses, I invite you to look for any hints of the book of Genesis. Okay, let's read John 20, 1 to 18. And this is the ESV translation. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Well, there is so much in there, and I would love to explore all of it with you. Sadly, I do not have the time to do all of that this morning. And I, in some ways, I hope I actually leave you with things to think through and discuss, ideally with your small groups. And if you're not in a small group, take out your phone, head over to the SVC app, oh, tap on small groups and join one. Please don't go it alone, that's all. Okay, let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Lord, as we read this remarkable account of your resurrection, may it come alive in a new way for each and every one of us. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us this morning. Amen. So this morning, I want to spend the time that we have looking at what John has to tell us through three lenses. The facts, the meaning, and the call. And I like to start with the facts. That's kind of how I'm wired. But I, it tends to help me get my head in the right space. So we'll start there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Jesus was dead. He was crucified and confirmed dead by the Romans on Good Friday. The day after, Saturday, was the Jewish Sabbath, which meant that nobody was going anywhere. The Jewish people wouldn't break Sabbath for virtually anything, including visiting the tombs of those who had passed away. But come Sunday morning, while it was still dark, and you can feel the eagerness there, as soon as it was possible for Mary to go, she headed to the tomb. Luke tells us she was headed to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices, which would be an act of care and of love and of honor. But who is Mary Magdalene anyway? So Mary is mentioned a good number of times in the Gospels. And we're told at one point that Jesus healed her of demonic possession. But beyond that, we don't actually know an awful lot. Here's what we know. Mary was an exceptionally popular name. Apparently, some estimates have it as high as one in four women and girls were called Mary. Magdalene, then, not a surname. 
Turns out, it was likely an indicator of where she came from, Magdala on the western shore of Galilee. And so it was used to distinguish her from the other Marys, if you like. So in modern day, Pete wouldn't be Pete Hardy. He would be Pete edinburgh -ine. And I would be Paul Blackpoolene. Mm. And given all the various mentions that she gets in the Gospels, it's likely that Mary uh, accompanied Jesus for all of his earthly ministry, though not as a named disciple or an apostle. In fact, some Christian traditions have her down as an apostle to the apostles. She was kind of always there. But to bust some myths for a second, because that's also important, people in history have made her out to either be a prostitute or somebody to be overly venerated. And neither is justified from the biblical data. If you're not sure, just do a search on your phone. On, in your Bible for Magdalene, and you'll see what I mean. But we do know one other thing. Jesus chose to appear to her first. More on that one later. So Mary went to the tomb as soon as humanly possible, and she discovers it empty. She then runs to Peter and John to tell them what happened, and they then hot-foot it to the tomb themselves to see with their own eyes. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Like Brian was saying last week, this is the kind of incidental detail that you throw in when you're just telling a story, isn't it? But maybe because I've got older brothers, I don't know, but I always have a little chuckle because I read like, uh, I don't know if you know, but there was a, a little race and one of us got there <laughs> before the other and it wasn't Peter, just saying. <laughs> but it actually tells us plenty it actually tells us that John was likely younger than Peter. And that's why he could outrun him. It also tells us that the only thing they cared about was getting to the tomb. Getting to the truth of what had happened. Getting to the scene of the crime. Where is the body? Now John and Peter, they're all so important here. Yes, they're two prominent disciples. But they're also important witnesses. They're court approved, if you like. If they provided legal statements that the tomb was empty, it would be valid. And in line with Deuteronomy 17, 1 Corinthians 13, and a raft of other places in the Bible that there require two witnesses to establish the truth of the matter. Now, much could be said about the patriarchal norms that require there to be two men to act as witnesses, but it's perhaps worth noting that Jesus appears to reject that aspect by choosing Mary as his first witness, a woman who couldn't act as a witness by the laws of the day. It's almost like Jesus doesn't care for human rules sometimes. According to verse 10, Peter and John head home. Now, perhaps on the way home, they were going to find out what had happened to the missing body, or perhaps they were just going to hunker down. We don't really know. Some invited us to consider what might have changed if Judas hadn't left at Passover. And I wonder here, too, what would have happened if Peter and John had stayed put? But they didn't. But Mary... Oh, Mary meets the resurrected Jesus. And she wasn't expecting to because, and this is a key point, people don't get resurrected. <laughs> that was as true for them as it is for us today. Now, sometimes there are suggestions that there were some ancient, primitive, superstitious beliefs at play. Let's be honest, gullibility. That's the claim. They were gullible. And that doesn't ring true. They were living through a brutal Roman occupation they were extremely grounded, very streetwise people. They had to be to survive in their world. They'd seen Jesus do remarkable things, yes. But having witnessed the ferocious and inhuman Roman execution, 
in the crucifixion, I don't believe Peter, John, Mary, or anyone else was expecting the resurrection. The fact that Mary continues crying, asking Jesus where the body is. The fact that Peter and John went home rather than celebrating a miracle. And the fact that they and the other disciples continued to hide in fear all suggests as much. Now, we also need to be clear about one other thing here. The word resurrection. Resurrection is not the same thing as revivification or resuscitation. When Jesus raised people from the dead, or when it happened in the Old Testament, those people, Jairus' daughter, the widow's son, Lazarus, went on to die once more. In the case of Jesus himself, no such second death. And a transformed body that, as we will hear in the coming weeks, allowed him to appear and disappear at will. And yet not a ghost, for Mary was able to cling on to him. Thomas was able to physically touch Jesus' hands and side. And on several occasions, Jesus ate with his disciples. Of the 108 billion people who are estimated to have walked the earth, one has been resurrected. One. That is what history will now pivot on. Because Jesus is the first of us to be resurrected. And God's promise is that those who believe in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. It's a well-known verse. In other words, for followers of Jesus, the same resurrection awaits. So Mary meets the resurrected Jesus. And maybe because it was still dark. Or maybe because she's crying. But John tells her she thinks he's the gardener. The gardener. In a garden. Like Genesis. In fact, Jesus asks her, whom are you seeking? Which is an odd question. Given he must have already known. But it's reminiscent of the question that God asks in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are hiding. Whom are you seeking? He asks her, where are you? Asks God in the first garden. And on realizing she's actually speaking with a risen Jesus, Mary clings on to him as any of us would were we to meet a loved one who we believed lost. Her grief becomes overwhelming relief and joy. Jesus then says to her, verse 17, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so Mary does. Mary returns to the disciples saying she's seen Jesus and passes on the message Jesus gave her. Okay. Let's talk about what this all means. What hangs in the balance of John's retelling is not some strange event of a man in AD 33 being resurrected because by itself, it's just a thing that happened. It's just a fact. It's a fact that I was born in Blackpool, that the sun rose this morning, not that you could tell, that I had breakfast and that you're sitting here listening to me. Facts are perhaps interesting, but they're not particularly helpful by themselves. We've got to go underneath facts to their meaning and significance Again, that's why I love John. And the stakes here are as high as you could possibly imagine. If John is right, history itself has truly turned on its head. And if it has, and if we can live in the light of it, our perspective of everything must change with it. To understand what John is laying out for us then, we need to understand what Genesis says, and in particular Genesis 3, 
the detailing of the fall and our brokenness and the brokenness of our relationship with God. Now, as you probably know, Genesis 3 records a truth of our experience. We have rejected God and fractured our relationship with him through pride and disobedience. We failed to hit the moral mark, as it were. We have a term for that, sin. And we know this all too well. It's the source of greed, envy, trouble, strife. And as we're witnessing yet again, so distressingly, wars. Adam and Eve, man and woman, both come under God's judgment for following the serpent's, Satan's lies. And that's the enduring story of the first creation. The universal judgment of that first garden is death and separation from God, the very source of life itself. Now, here's the turn. John 19, he pointed out to us that Jesus was buried in a tomb and there's this garden there too. And we've already caught two of the Genesis echoes in terms of Mary thinking Jesus was the gardener and the question he asks us. So there's this second garden, if you like. Then there's also Jesus himself, who according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is the second Adam. He reverses the, the judgment the first Adam's actions brought into the world. He redeems us from that judgment by having stood in our place. The reason John echoes the Genesis is because the story of Jesus kicks off God's second new creation. Where the first creation was good but marred by sin and shame, John wants us to know that God has started something new with his son, Jesus, marked by the resurrection. Where that first garden started with life and ended so tragically in death. The second garden starts with death and ends in new life. I know, it's amazing, right? Ah, so good. Jesus' sacrifice restores direct access to God, to life, to freedom, and to peace. It declares a different way to live, a way directly connected to God himself. And it also declares the serpents, Satan's ultimate defeat. And this creation, this one shall not be marred. Now, there are other aspects to this that blow my mind. Let me explain. So there's this moment in Genesis 3 when God rebukes the serpent for what he's done leading Eve and by extension Adam astray. And he says, verse 15, this is God talking to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now you could just say that's our relationship with snakes. Okay. But there's a long and venerable line of thinking that this is the first glimpse of God's redemptive plan. Its name if you want for Latin names, is protevangelium, which means first good news. And what it suggests is that all the way back in Genesis, God himself appears to announce that it'll be the offspring of woman, Jesus, who will be bruised by the serpent, the cross, and who will in turn bruise his head, the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, the new creation, was planned and announced all the way back at the start. Hmm. I wonder, does God sometimes appear too slow for your tastes? <laughs> yeah, 
If so, me too. Welcome to the club. But this is telling us he has his plans and his promises, and he's in the business of keeping them, even if the timings aren't the ones that we would choose. In fact, this whole thing reminds us that God often works in a way that we can't predict or understand. I mean, Jesus has told the disciples what's to come, and verse 9, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. So those are a couple of things that blow my mind. Now, here is one other. And the maneuver Jesus makes here is so deftly, so beautifully, so subtly done, you might miss it. Verse 17, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. I'm so used to these passages, I confess, I take them a little bit for granted. Maybe you do too. But this is profound. In John's retelling with its second garden and its reversal of the Genesis story, Mary can be seen as the New Testament counterpart to Eve, where Eve lost her relationship and life with God in the first garden, Mary is called by name and commissioned by God in the second. What Jesus has done, therefore, can and should be seen as a complete and total redemption for men and women alike. And Mary's commission from the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is to carry the most important, life-giving, life-changing message of them all. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you aren't friends with God. You're his children. You cry, Abba, Father, Daddy! And he answers. He answers that call. It's amazing. My kids are still at the wonderful age where they mob me when I come home from work. Daddy! And as they get bigger, it's like being hit by a rhino. And I may often be weary, but I love that they mob me and want to tell me everything that's happened in their days. The creator of time, the universe, and everything in it wants to have a deep, intimate relationship with you as this new creation unfolds. He never gets tired and he wants to hear about everything you've got going on. He loves you. As of this moment here in John's gospel, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is, neither, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians. Welcome to the family. No haves and have-nots, no in-groups and out-groups, no worthy and unworthy, qualified and unqualified, God's children, just children. Accepted, included, loved, valued, cherished. I think some of you need to hear that this morning, more than perhaps anything else. Again, accepted, included, loved, valued, cherished by God himself. Serpent's head, well and truly bruised. And that's good news, isn't it? Yeah? Yeah, I think you're allowed to smile and nod. And one of these days, I'm going to find out what the word gospel means. Anyway, look, it's phenomenal news. Don't let this just be a neutral fact. It's supposed to grab you, hold you, and change you. It's something to tell the whole world about. 
And I think they could use some good news about now, couldn't they? All right. So finally, the call. And that's the thing. There's a call. There's a different way to live, and Jesus is inviting us as God's children to participate in it. And you can see that in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And you can also see it with how Jesus treats Mary here. Mary Magdalene has a unique experience with Jesus and therefore has a -a one-of-a-kind message to carry that points others towards him. Now, Jesus could have appeared to Peter, John, or all the disciples at once. He could have just bypassed everything and everyone, but he chose Mary first as the carrier of his message. She has a story to tell, and Jesus wants her to tell it. He doesn't tell her to construct a 10-week theology course. No disrespect to theology courses. And he doesn't make her responsible for how they respond. He simply tells Mary to go and tell the disciples what she's seen and heard. No more, but no less. Back in our series on James, um, Pete put a question in front of us, and one that Sam also asked recently, and now so do I. Do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? That Jesus died, was buried, and on the third day resurrected so that we might be called sons and daughters of the living God. Because if you do, it reorders everything in your life. It is not a neutral fact. And believing that, do you want to participate Now, for some of us, the answer is, yeah, but. And we're still back with 108 billion people and one resurrection. It just sounds too big. I get it. And to all my fellow head people, we who get stuck in here sometimes, I see you. I love my science and my statistics. All my working life has been in the reliable, the provable, the dependable. But now I get to ask you what I ask myself. In the tug of war for your beliefs, what wins? Is it what you can understand? Is it what you can reason about? Is it the best scientific theories? Or is it something else? Don't get me wrong, because I'm far from anti-intellectual or anti-science. Love it. I just ask because I've experienced what Paul says in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if the spirit himself bears witness that we are his children, then we are assured that John is telling us the truth, that Jesus has truly opened the way for us to be children of God. No resurrection, no children. If children, then resurrection. And I don't mean that there are no intellectual challenges. I know they can be tough. You're not alone, and you should ask your questions. My own path has been to wrestle with things. And I have found and I continue to find that Jesus is exceptionally gracious to those who struggle in their belief. And there are books, and I will point you at all of them, (laughs) if that helps. But all the same, I just want to ask you where your trust really lies. For some of us, though, the problem we face is our story. 
Perhaps we don't think we have one. Maybe we feel like an unworthy outsider. Or maybe we don't want to share it for fear of how it sounds. What if we sound deluded? Yeah, that's a risk. But it's one that Mary took. The disciples heard the story and we know from Luke 24 they didn't believe it. It was an idle tale or nonsense, depending on your translation. And that must have been a long day for Mary. I've seen the Lord. No, Mary, you've seen the gardener. (laughs) I wonder, when Jesus showed up later that evening, what was that like for Mary? I would have been captain told you so. To be clear on the apparent order, you meet the risen Jesus, which changes everything. You tell your story, and then Jesus confirms it. That's how you participate. You don't need all the answers. You're not responsible for how anyone responds. You don't even need to feel like you're worthy or have the words. But are you willing to take the risk? Well, I shouldn't shouldn't suggest to you something I wouldn't be willing to do myself. So I'll tell you my story, or at least a little bit of what I can fit into the time that we have. And I rarely feel like it's that much of a story. But that's not for me to decide. Now, while I'm doing that, and I'm the worship team, you could come back. But just like give it a minute, or just like walk really slowly, or whatever. (laughs) Slow-mo, like, yeah. So my story. I became a follower of Jesus when I was four or five years old. And I don't remember the exact date because I was small, but I do remember the exact moment. Yes. Yeah, that's good. I do remember the exact moment because I was in the car on the way to the hospital. It's all right. On the way to the hospital for an eye appointment with my mom. And I remember asking her, how did you become friends with Jesus? What a question. Well, she said, you just pray and ask him. Go, mom. So I did. Now, you may be thinking that wasn't a reasoned decision on my part, what with my age. But that's not how I see it. Because before I was even born, my parents and others were praying for me that I would meet the risen Jesus for myself and that my life would be shaped by his plans for me. So I believe he answered their prayers. And in some sense, before I chose him, he chose me. Before I called him daddy, he called me son. And when I was 18 months old, (laughs) my parents were a bit concerned about my development. Nobody and nothing really got me to move, you know? Bounce on someone's lap? No. Walk? Not so much. Climb? Not on your Nelly. And one day my two older brothers had some bubble mixture in one of those bubble blowing things. You know, know, they were blowing bubbles out of the window and watching them float away into the sky. And I chose that moment to get moving. Following the bubbles, I climbed onto a chair and then onto the window ledge and I fell. About 10 feet onto concrete paving slabs. The doctors were very clear that they expected me to die. And as I laid in hospital life hanging by the thinnest of threads, my parents did the best thing imaginable. They got their church family together with them to pray. And as you can see, I'm here. I'll tell you this as simply as I know how. I believe God miraculously saved my life that day. And I don't really know why me and why not others. 
But my life's aim is to live up to that gift. Of course, none of that mattered as I hit my rebellious teenage years because I'm a massive walking cliche. I decided that I knew better than my parents, better than church, and better than God. I'm smart. I've got this. My late teens and my early 20s were bleak as I, like many others before me and since, have attempted to live life without the source of life itself. At university, I was doing fine academically, but my relationships and identity were broken. I was broken. I was desperate, I was rudderless, and I couldn't fix it. I was unable to change any of it, and I was lost and trying anything I could to fix it, apart from the one thing I should do. And one day I met a guy called Rich Boothroyd. Cheers, Rich. He was a few years older than me, and part of some student Christian mission thing. I don't really remember much about the mission, but I remember Rich. I remember the time he made for me and the love and care he showed me. I remember him slowly, carefully, over the course of months, walking me back to my place and God's family. And I'm exceptionally grateful that he did. Because I reflect on my life so far, through all the ups and the downs, my parents' divorce, the loss of family members, sometimes the cruel and debilitating illnesses, in my rebellions, yes, multiple, some ongoing, in my marriage to Heather, in the birth of my two children, in the laughs, in the tears, in the doubts, the fears, friendships, the paralyzing anxiety I routinely face, in the loud, but mostly in the quiet, I know God's Holy Spirit has walked and is walking with me. He's been there with me. He is there now. And when I turn my back on him, he never turned his on me and he never will. He calls me and you to new life, to restoration to himself. The spirit himself bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. All because Jesus, God's son, the second Adam, was willing to go to the cross in my place. That's my story. I wonder, will you tell yours?